an Oscar, a fortune from a tech company, and a PhD from MIT. These are just some of the things that filmmaker Charles Ferguson has, and I do not. What we share is a passion for important true stories told with precision, poetry, and panache. In his masterwork, Inside Job, Ferguson performed a vivisection of the global financial crisis of 2008. It is a crime movie in which the whole world is the stage. Why he made it, how he did it, and what he's hatching next is the subject of this episode of The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Charles Ferguson. Well, without uh, uh, excessive preamble, I'll just give you a, a sort of simple preview. You know, this podcast is a series of discussions, uh, you know, between filmmakers about kind of craft methodology process. And for me, um, I'm always interested in the story beneath the story. That is to say, you know, every film has the story that it tells. And then what's the story of the making of that film? So... Um, beginning there, coming from no end in sight to um, inside job, what's that pivot? And when do you decide, okay, this is the next film that I'm going to tackle. And what are the lessons that you draw from your first film and apply, you know, and how do you apply them to inside job? And how does, and how's the film, how does the film sort of get born? Uh, Well, after no end in sight, um, I was, looking around for what to do next. One of my friends, um, who um, very sadly passed away recently, um, one of my friends in New York is a, is a remarkable man uh, named Charles Morris. And Charlie Morris um, it was uh, a writer who had had a previous, several previous lives that were very interesting, including in banking and finance. And uh, and one day in 2007, um, uh, Charlie called me up and said, you know, uh, I've just written this, this book and it's kind of, I think you might find it kind of interesting. Um, and I, it's still in, uh, uh, it's still pre galleys. Uh, so I'm still doing some editing on it. So I'd be interested in your take. And so could I send you, um, a copy and he, so he sent me a PDF and um, and I read it and the title of the book was the trillion dollar meltdown now this is this is approximately July I don't know June July of 2007 not 2008 and nobody was talking about the world falling apart and his book was about saying the world's about to fall apart. And, uh, and I read it and I called him up and I said, you know, Charlie, you, you know, this looks very real and serious and convincing as is everything you do, but this just sounds a little extreme. And I remember him telling me with that little smile that he got when he knew that he was going to make a fool of you. He said, Charles, call me in six months. <laughs> wow. And, um, uh, yeah. Uh, so that was kind of the first thing that stimulated me. Um, but that was before the crisis itself. Um, then the second thing that stimulated me was, 
uh, I have another friend from New York also and, and from academic life, um, Nuriel Rubini, who was the first economist, he's a professor at NYU, he was the first economist um, to kind of say in public uh, and in you know a sort of academically respectable way or from an academically respectable source that this was going to be a huge problem. And I knew Nuriel also. And Nuriel had a reputation for exaggerating, and, and a, a mutual friend of ours once described him as somebody who had correctly predicted nine of the last four recessions, um, <laughs> which is, there's some truth to that. But uh, what Nuriel said, you know, also sounded very compelling coming on the heels of um, what uh, I had just read from Charlie Morris, and then uh, Bear Stearns collapsed. And uh, that sort of got me interested Catalyzed. and stimulated. Right. Uh, I still didn't. I still hadn't decided that I would um, make a film about this because it, it still wasn't clear that there was something worth making a film about. But then, when September of two thousand eight came, and you know, Lehman Brothers, AIG, you know, the whole world fell apart. Um, uh, I, you know, I already had some knowledge and some intellectual preparation. And I went to the two guys who run uh, Sony Classics, uh, Michael Barker and Tom Bernard, uh, who uh, are crusty, tough, uh, somewhat cynical, hard-bitten types. Um, and, and we sometimes loved each other and sometimes snarled at each other. Um, uh, but, you know, I, but they're very smart people and, and Michael Barker knows a lot and is interested in the stock market um, and financial stuff. And uh, so he had been following it pretty closely. And so I went to them and said, you know, there's a really interesting story here. And, uh, and they and we made the negotiations were quite difficult, actually, quite sometimes quite adversarial. But uh, we over ended up budget making, or what specific or sort of creative direction of it or in, in what regard? Uh, mainly, mainly budgetary and financial matters, you know, mainly how much would it cost? How much would they give me? What fraction of the revenue would I get under what circumstances, you know, um, and They've made out very well, that film. <laughs> very, very well. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the ROI on that film for them is probably among the highest of anything they've ever done. Is the, that right? The, yeah, the, the absolute numbers are not the highest that they've ever done, you know, far from it. Percentage-wise, however. Uh, but percentage-wise, you know, they, they gave me a million dollars, um, and the total budget was two. Uh, and um, they, we made a deal which was based on a budget of 1.6. It went over budget. I funded that myself. Um, uh, but that, too, turned out to be the best investment I ever made. And, and you know, I have to say, I've, I myself have made several million dollars from Inside Job. 
Um, but they've made way more. <laughs> way um, more. <laughs> well, on that on that note, I want to sort of segue into, um, I guess, some sort of craft specific questions that, that that tie into the film, which is, I, I think you know the there's a couple of innumerable brilliant things about the film but but I think one of the things that I really loved and latched onto in a sort of story construction way is you have the you know Iceland in some sense or another is this perfect miniature for the rest of the film and it's a very elegant way in terms of story construction to begin building this. It's almost like a miniature model that then you kind of extrapolate out into the kind of greater implications and and the sort of how it plays forward and also what precedes it contextually. But then, you know, also what's beautiful about the movie is it is in fact a movie. You know, this subject matter could be... uh, purely informational and, you know, dry or, uh, you know, potentially not have the kind of human hook. And, and I thought there was this, you know, incredible beauty that you managed to evoke literally from frame one, starting with, you know, all of these elegant landscape shots and the sort of beauty of Iceland with score underneath. And so it announces itself with as cinema from frame one. And then by the time you get into the title sequence, it's like pop song, you know, and it's got this sort of almost like Scorsese-esque vibe by the time you're introducing characters and you have freeze frames. And I I talk about the like tonal, visual uh, style references or, you know, inspirations that you had going into it and, and why those choices? Uh, well, I would say there's two things. One is um, uh, it's a thriller. It's a crime film. You know, there's, uh, there's detective work and there's bad guys and there's a crime and there's victims and, you know, uh, so all of the, the kind of um, uh tropes or traditions that you associate with crime films, you know, I thought were appropriate. Um, and the other thing was, uh, these, these bankers who did this, you know, they're, they're incredibly arrogant, they're wealthy, they're, they pride themselves on being, uh, stylish and, cool in a conservative way, you know, cool in the sense that they have the most expensive suits and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I, I kind of wanted to make a film that said to them and said to the world, you know, we have just as much smarts and style and swagger as you assholes do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'm going to take you down and I'm going to take you down in a way that's cooler than the crap you did, you know? I uh, love it. And yeah. So I, I that was kind of a mission. Uh, well, uh, you know, it, to frame this as a crime movie and to, to be playing with those um, genre tropes, which as audiences we love and enjoy the familiarity of, and then the sort of stylistic ones, it's just, uh, 
is brilliant and, and, and fun and, and, and sort of takes you on a ride. Did you have like cinematographer, editors, are you watching specific films to inform it or is it just kind of in your head or how do you find the tone? Uh, I didn't, I didn't watch a lot of films while I was making it, but, but I certainly had a lot of films in my head that I already watched, um, for sure. And, um, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, uh, I would ask the editors, you know, have you seen this? Have you seen that? You know, what about this? What about that? Uh, Chad Beck, you know, um, uh, has, he loves the Bourne films, uh, at least the first three. Um, as I do, I think they're, I think they're really cool movies, you know, um, and, uh, so, you know, those kinds of things were, were references. Um, yeah. Uh, and then talk about the sort of, you know, the visuals in the sense of, you know, there's those amazing aerials that are all at the beginning of the, and really all throughout the film, but you establish them in Iceland, then you sort of pay them off as we get to New York as we're, you know, the overhead sort of, sort of skyscraper shots. Like, are you setting a set of, okay, these are the visual elements that we're going to be working with and reprising sort of throughout, like talk about, talk about the decisions that go into that. Um, well, I, uh, we wanted it and I wanted it not, and it wasn't just me. Um, uh, the, uh, my producer, Audrey Mars, uh, is a very elegant person, uh, who loves film herself. She also loves uh, the arts. She has a master's in curatorship. Uh, she, she loves fashion and good clothing. She loves photography. She loves cinematography. Um, and she has extremely good taste. Um, uh, and we had a couple of uh, DPs who also have extremely good taste. A lot of the cinematography was done by, uh, Kalyani Mom, uh, who's an amazing, uh, Cambodian American filmmaker. Her, her first, uh, documentary film, a River Changes Course, which is about the impact of modernization uh, on Cambodia, um, won the, uh, the grand prize at Sundance a few years after Inside Job. You know, she, and she has just an astounding eye. Um, so, you know, we cared about, and I, and I cared about um, every shot looking as good as it could. And, and, I, and I wanted to... Uh, to use the aerial cinematography in part because New York was the location of so much of this crime. And there are so many uh, films, including a lot of thrillers that, you know, have been filmed in New York in that way. And uh, so it's a character. I mean, it's a character in the movie. New York is in a fundamental yeah. sense. Yeah. And so, um, when do you shoot the aerials in the process? Like, what is that? You know, are you deep into the edit? Is it early on? Like, sort of, what do you, how do you, where, where do you, how and when do you come to that? It was uh, late, in, late in production, but before any editing. And um, you'd shot all your interviews at that point? Or you'd shot yeah. some percentage of them? Almost all of them. We shot, how, many to uh, how many total shoot days would you, uh, ballpark, that would you say at the top of your head? And how long are those ind individual interviews that you're that you're shooting the interviews are uh are long uh very long some of them um i would say they averaged an hour and a half and some of them were three or four hours um and uh and there were a considerable number of interviews that didn't make it into the film 
um, uh, in some cases to my regret, in other cases, just you no. Know. Um, so we, oh, let me think. I would imagine that, that I filmed certainly over a hundred hours of interviews and possibly 200, you know, somewhere between a hundred and 200 hours of interviews. And I'd have to check to get you a number, but it was like that. And, and we did a lot of location filming also, a lot. Uh, we just wandered around the streets of New York at every time of day and night. Um, and we were looking for uh, real estate. We were looking for construction. We were looking for fancy bank buildings. Um, we were, yeah, all kinds of things, people. Um, uh, and, um, and the aerials, um, I'm extremely ashamed that I can't remember his name. He's, he's an amazing guy who's known as the guy in New York. If you want good aerial, you go to him he's, and hire his around. helicopter. Yeah. Uh, and so it was, uh, all of that aerial was done in about seven, somewhere between six and eight hours, starting at five o'clock in the morning. Amazing. Yeah. It's spectacularly beautiful. Um, and then talk about the process, talk about the interviews, because I think the interviews are, are a, a sort of, you know, signature and fascinating piece of this. Like, the, clearly, there are the kind of protagonists and antagonists, and, and like people fall on, you know, either side of the spectrum oftentimes. And those interviews, like, A, what's the process of booking them? People, and I guess specifically I'm asking, where you have somebody that you know is going to sort of fall into the bad guy camp, and that it, there's a, you know, okay, this is going to be a stick it to them interview in some form or fashion. How are you booking that? And then how are you going about executing it on the day vis-a-vis both not getting them to sort of refuse to do the interview and sort of sitting through an aggressive challenge? Um, well, so there were two things made it possible to, to get those done. Um, one was my academic background. You know, on paper, um, I looked like a member of the establishment, you know, uh, undergraduate in mathematics, PhD in political science from MIT, thesis advisor who had been the deputy national security advisor for Kennedy, and then he'd been uh, director of the Institute for Advanced Studies, on the board of Polaroid, blah, 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 you know. Um, and, and, and my own stuff, you know, that I published, you know, about, uh, um, the national interest of the United States in high technology industries, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't look like, uh, you looked like a friendly, I looked like a friendly. Yeah. Uh, life member of the council on foreign relations, you know, all that. Um, it, so that was, that was one thing. The, and the other thing was, uh, stealth. Uh, we tried to keep our process and our interviews, uh, absolutely as secret as possible. And we did a pretty good job. Um, and, and there was a third amusing thing that, that was, uh, that, that I, I found absolutely delightful, which was um, when a bad guy got caught and interviewed and nailed to the wall, 
the last thing it turned out, the last thing he wanted to do was tell any of his pals that that had just happened. Uh, I was terrified that, you know, after Glenn Hubbard got nailed to the wall, that nobody was going to shut it down, reach out to everybody and shut it down. Yeah. But he didn't do that because he wasn't exactly proud of what had just happened to him. (laughs) And he just hoped it would go away. (laughs) But it didn't. Um, and, and, and that turned out to be true repeatedly. You know, uh, there's, I, I, I haven't counted for a while or, um, thought about it for a while, but you know, there's, there's probably around 10 people in that film who, you know, didn't exactly enjoy their interview. Um, and to my knowledge, not a single one of them spoke to anybody else about it until the film came out. Did you get any blowback from anybody when it does, when it did, in terms of interview subjects, right, that, that felt like, oh, this guy just sort of gored me publicly here in this interview? Or, and did any of that filter back to you directly by the time it kind of comes into the world? Uh, well, of course, a number of people were unhappy, um, and a, a few of them expressed that to me directly. Um, uh a few of them demanded or attempted to demand that uh, I not use their interview, saying that you know they withdrew their permission to be interviewed or whatever. Um, but not you know not really not not in any serious way. No. Um, one of them, uh, Frederick Mishkin, wrote uh, an op-ed in the Financial Times defending himself um, and trying to explain away what's in the film. Uh, he, he, everything in that, uh, that, that, that was kind of interesting, actually. Everything in what he wrote was a lie. Um, and, uh, and when I read it, I was just completely <laughs> outraged. And I called up the people at the Financial Times, who I knew, and I said, you know, look, you better give me a right to reply or it's lawsuit time. And they gave me a right to reply, although they, they edited the reply in ways that I did not appreciate. But, but they did give me a right to reply, uh, and, and I did reply in the FT. Um, but th- that was the only, that was really the only um, blowback. Basically, uh, the serious people in the financial world and in the political world did the rational thing, rational from their point of view, from the point of view of their self-interest, which was to pretend it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Just your heads and Ignore the film, play, play, never mention it. Play ostrich, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, um, a couple more questions for you. I don't want to keep you too long, but I have a couple of more kind of craft methodology um, process questions, if you don't mind. When you're, how much of the architecture of the film do you have in your head from the time that you're shooting interviews to the kind of you know, there's the elegant story structure, part one, part two, et cetera, as, as it goes. How much of that is in your head going into the edit versus how much is a process of discovery? And how are you going about whittling down 100 plus interviews, you know, into hour and 45 minute film uh, or whatever the runtime run of it is? Uh, none of it was in my head at the beginning. Uh, all of it emerged uh, during production and post-production. Uh, in part because um, in in both cases, both No End Sight and also um, Inside Job, 
uh, on a very regular basis, uh, I learned just jaw-dropping things that I had not previously realized. I'm, you know, if, if, if somebody had told me at the beginning of No One Insight um, just how astoundingly incompetent and stupid and barbaric the occupation of Iraq had been conducted and managed, I wouldn't have believed three quarters of what they would have told me. I, you know, I only believed it because I ended up seeing it myself. And very, very much the same with regard to the financial crisis. You know, I was just astounded. I, I had actually, you know, when, when I was um, a graduate student and postdoc at MIT, I actually worked in the investment banking industry uh, for a while. I, I was a, a research analyst half time. I was a research analyst uh, for an investment bank uh, doing research on high technology stocks and whether they were worth buying or not. Investment banking then was totally different, totally different. And, and I hadn't, you know, kept track since. And when I looked at it again, it had just transformed beyond recognition. And, and I was just astounded at what I saw, totally astounded. So everything uh, about the structure of those films was devised. Um, it, it began appearing as production and interviews went forward, but the majority of it was in the editing room. Um, so first we, we did transcripts of everything. Um, the, uh, the editors watched down the entire thing, every single frame we shot. Um, and I, of course, I'd been there when I did the interviews. Um, I reread the transcripts. We cut initial assemblies. I did one on paper. The editors did them uh, on film, you know, digital film. And the first assemblies were, you know, I don't know, eight, 10 hours long, something like that. And then gradually we began honing down, structuring, putting things in blocks and groups according to subject. Um, and, and then when we needed something else, you know, we went and found it. Um, yeah. And what about the writing process? Because, you know, there is a, it's a critical component to this film, which is, you know, this very smartly yet very clear, like there's a distillation of complex ideas that have to be, you know, you have to do a high level kind of code switch to understand the complexities of this and then to translate it to a lay audience that's like, wait a minute, I'm tracking a crime movie. And are you writing and are you sort of, um, you know, dumbing your um, voiceover as you go? Are you recording it sort of throughout and constantly rewriting and then tethering it to the edit? Or what's the writing process? Uh, the writing of the narration uh, was quite late in the process. Um, this is a, it's a preference of, of Chad's for sure, and and also Adam Bolt, the other editor on Inside Job. Um, they they like to minimize narration, and and I tend to agree, not as much as they do. I, I tend to like a bit more narration than they like, but they they pushed to to minimize it and i think that that benefited the film it, it made us get as much as we could out of the interviews and uh and think very hard about what we needed to say in narration uh graphics also helped sometimes um 
and and we had a we had good graphics people. Um, and what else would I say about that? I, I, I had had some similar experience actually in my software company because the software product was something that took an activity that up until that point, up until 1994, 95, uh, if you wanted to develop a website, uh, you had to hire a programmer to do it. And, uh, and so the process of developing that product was how do we take the conventions of, you know, a word processor or a spreadsheet program um, and make it possible using that kind of technology, those kinds of techniques for a normal person, not a technical person to do these things that were technical things. And so it, it, it uh, I'd spent, you know, a year thinking hard about, you know, how to translate and distill translate. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that turned out to be helpful. Um, and I also got help from uh, some of the, the people in that world who had written about the financial crisis. Um, a fantastic journalist at Fortune uh, magazine at the time, Alan Sloan, um, who had a wicked wild sense of humor, uh, some of which I could not put in the film, unfortunately. Uh, I remember when I was interviewing him at one point, he said, well, um, how would you like me to to tell this story, Charles? Do you want do you want it uh, complicated and technical? Do you want it simple? Do you want it long? Do you want it short? And I said to him, uh, Mr. Sloan, don't don't worry about that um, because we have this wonderful software that can um, take what you say and turn it into anything we want. <laughs> and uh, and he responded, uh, without missing a beat, he responded, well, that's just fine, Charles. When this movie comes out, I'm going to write about your ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wanted to put that in the film, but I just couldn't get it in. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Good, great story. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's an interesting combination, just to stay on the writing for, for a minute, uh, which is you use both voiceover and the use of cards. And, you know, what was the choice there in terms of, okay, this should be voiceover or this should be distilled into a written card? Um, it, was, it was partially a matter of pacing and punctuation and uh, did, was it time to give the audience a rest? Uh, or not, um, and it, was it important to show an image about this or not? Uh, if it was important to show an image, we tried to do it in voiceover so that we could have an image, uh, the image. Um, uh, if not, then sometimes we thought, you know, both visually and intellectually, time to give the audience a little bit of a rest, or maybe time to denote end of one subject, beginning of another. You know, the rhythm is a, is a brilliant thing, I think, another brilliant aspect to the film, because it's got almost this Aaron Sorkin-like kind of propulsiveness to it, and yet there is, you, you do bake in these moments where it's like, okay, let me absorb all of this information that has just come at me in this sort of intense and rapid-fire way, and the pacing is really uh, brilliant because it's both propulsive and yet... Uh, digestible, and I bet that I bet the I bet I bet you spent some time in the edit bay. How long were you in the edit on this thing? Oh, a long time. It was, and, and you know, both Chad and Adam worked like really hard. Um, 
and and deserve a lot of credit for what came out you know um, yeah it was it, it was it, it was an amazing experience it was one of the most definitely a peak experience of my life it was fantastic making that film but um easy it was not it was it was hard work i'm sure i'm sure well, I'll let you go, but I just have one final question for you, and you can feel free not to answer it if you don't want to. But I'm curious what you're working on now. Um, I'm I'm mainly working on something uh, on something that has nothing to do with film. Um, uh, uh, it's a startup. I God help me, I'm doing a technology startup right now. I am, um, which is completely nothing relation, no relation whatsoever to the film industry. It's a it's a marketplace company, you know, kind of like Airbnb, but not Airbnb, but kind of like that. Um, uh, still a secret, but not for long. Um, uh, I am in the background working on a documentary. Uh, I have a friend who is uh, 85 years old now. His name is Joe Menel. Um, J-O is how Joe is spelled, which plays an important role in a in a quite remarkable story about his his career, uh, which I won't tell now. Um, uh, but Joe has had uh, an unbelievably complicated, interesting, varied, fascinating life. He knows everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Miles Davis, Salvador Allende, Bobby Kennedy, uh, on and on and on and on. You know, and uh, he, he comes from an extraordinarily wealthy South African Jewish family, uh, was kicked out of South Africa early in his life for agitating against apartheid, had an unbelievably interesting, complicated career as a documentary filmmaker for the BBC independently, was in charge of Chilean national television during the uh, Allende years in Chile. Um, yeah, on and on and on. So I am, uh, I, during COVID, we started Skyping with each other. And uh, he's also, by the way, screamingly funny. Screamingly funny. Sounds Frequently. like an amazing subject. Uh, he is. Um, and so I'm going to make a documentary about Joe Mennell, his life and times, and the way they illustrate everything that has happened in the last 80 years of this planet. Well, hurry up and make another fortune with your startup because I can't wait to see that movie. It sounds amazing. Uh, it'll, it, it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for your time today, Charles. I really appreciate it. I have a thousand more questions, but I'll let you, I'll let you, I'll let you continue on with your life and we'll uh, hopefully cross paths uh, in person you know, before too terribly long. I hope so, sir. Thank you very much for, for your time and your interest. Um, uh, I enjoyed it. it was- Pleasure to converse with you very much. Take care. Thank you to Charles Ferguson for taking the time to discuss his life and work. And thank you to his collaborators, Chad Beck and Adam Bolt, Big Star, and everyone else who contributed their love and labor to the films. And thank you to Tom Luddy, midwife, confidant, and friend to some of cinema's brightest stars. And thank you to the wise men at Sony Pictures Classics. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. 
Music by Zydepunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe.